good morning. Welcome. Uh, if you're joining us online this morning, if you take a minute to go out a full screen and just let us know how many people are there with you, we would appreciate that. If you're a visitor with us here today, in the end of the pews, we have some visitor cards. If you'd take a moment to fill those out and then just drop them in one of the boxes that are located at the back part of the church, uh, we'd appreciate that. Just We'd like to be in contact with you. <clears throat> okay, um, Cox Family Dinner. Uh, is coming up on the tw 12th, and the sign-up sheet is right out here on this table in the foyer area. If you'd like to sign up to help on anything with that, it's just out there. It was passed around last week. We did get a lot of signatures. There, there are still a few open spaces, so if you'd like to help with that, just feel um, go ahead and sign up for that to help with that dinner. Um, Immediately after church today, all of those who said they would help with Juana's, we're just going to have a quick meeting, I hope, down, down in the uh, ladies' Sunday school room just down the hall here. Um, we're, and Juana's is starting this Wednesday night. So <clears throat> uh, we'll be starting at 6.15. So all the helpers, if you can meet down there, we'll just go over a few things and Get ready for Wednesday. I don't know why I have glasses because I can't see anything. <laughs> um, okay, if, if you're interested in doing um, AED, CPR, and first aid training, we are getting an AED device uh, here for the church. Um, and so we have to have people trained on that. So if you're interested in doing that training, just go ahead and contact the office. And they'll take your name and let you know when that training will take place. Um, all other life groups are meeting as normal. If you need to know where you're meeting this week, get a hold of your life group leaders. And that is all. Let's do the verse of the month. I'll stand. You got to be kidding me. And ask them, but, but say, say that I, I am. Peter, Peter answered him. You are the Christ, Mark 1, 29. I'll get my mic on here. Um, if you could turn to the book of Mark, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, church. I just want to uh, thank you all because we're trying new things, new things like offertory worship. We're trying new things like if you notice the stage looks a little different. We're trying new things because God says sing a, sing a new song to him, right? And we want to try some new things because as we talked about in the book of Mark, the book of Mark is a gospel of shock. It opens us up. It's to wake us up so that we don't just do business as usual, but that we are stand in awe of the cross of Christ. And so we want to do that. As you're turning to the book of Mark, I want to tell you a little story that's going to open us up today. So... Uh, when I was freshly married, when I was newly married, I made mistakes. Anybody there in that first year of marriage? Those of you who are married, um, some of you I know maybe are in your first year of marriage. There may be um, some, some new norms that you got to discover in marriage. And, and uh, I, as a young married man, thought it would be really funny to uh, set my wife up to be a little embarrassed. And we went to a pizza joint one time, and we're sitting there, and there's this big bowl that's mounted on the ceiling. 
And my wife goes, wow, that the bowl, whatever, it was speckled red and it just looked crazy to her. And so she points out, says, that bowl looks really strange. I said, yeah, you know, they made them like that. None of that's the real fur. None of that's the real hide. For those of you who are taxidermy specialists, you know that that's just not true, right? And so um, she says, are you sure? I don't know if I trust you on this. I said, honey, you said on our wedding day that you would trust me. Everybody go, ooh. Right? Okay, so fast forward like a month later, we're sitting at the same pizza joint and we got a bunch of friends with us. And my wife goes, guys, look at that bowl. Isn't that so cool? Isn't it amazing that they just, they made that up, that it had nothing to do with a real hide. And the whole room just fell silent. Like, and then there was some laughing. And Becky looks at me with this like deep-seated anger. Like, you have set me up. And I began to laugh. There were so many mistakes made in this moment, okay? I'm confessing and repenting to you now, right? But sometimes we have people in our lives that lead us on to believe things that aren't true, don't we? And whether they intend on it or not, it can be harmful. And it ruins this thing called trust. We know trust comes at a premium today, doesn't it? It is highly sought after and Few have earned our trust today. In fact, many have not earned our trust today. So I want to ask the question, who can we trust and how can we know how to trust? We see today that there's a great question. When you hear authority anywhere across the nation, we all begin to question, is this person have the right character? Can I trust this person? Whether it be politicians, whether it be pastors, whether it be teachers, there's that question in the air is, can we trust these people? And I don't know about you, but whenever I'm listening to somebody, even if it's a pastor, if it's somebody on YouTube, I'm constantly asking the question, can I trust this person? Do they know what they're talking about? And is it true? Do you guys ask those questions when you see this? Man, authority is questioned everywhere today. And for good reason. It's been abused. It's been manipulated. It's been devious. You ever heard of the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely? You've heard that one? Politicians have lost our trust. Celebrities have been found corrupt. The wealthy tend to have an agenda. Every corporation wants you to buy and is willing to steal your information to make that happen. Aren't they? That's where they collect our information. So who do you trust? You can't even trust the vendors of the things that you like to purchase. We found uh, agendas in our education systems. We've even found agendas in our religions. I think back in history, I think of uh, Catholicism, and we had that season of indulgences where they said that uh, depending on what your giving was for the church, you could, have, you could be let go or released from the consequences of sin spiritually, right? They called those indulgences. Well, that's not right. That's not scriptural. We had the Crusades, and so the whole world looks at the history of what they would call Christians and say, but yeah, those are the people that engaged in the Crusades, wouldn't they? They'd say that. How about our heroes of the past? When we look at some of the core people of our nation, when you look at and you begin to unravel not just the highlights of the heroes of our nation, but you start to look that these were regular men that made real mistakes. You guys ever think about that with like George Washington? We elevate him to this incredible level. But you ever looked at his relationship in his early career with scalping? Yeah, he was a regular guy. By the way, here's a great book. It's called Seven Great Men 
by Eric Metaxis. It's a great way to find out that our heroes were just men. Our heroes were just men, oftentimes at the right place, accidentally at the right time. Even our pastors, our televangelists, guys, we live in a society, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to lay it out, I'm going to be honest. We live in a lack of trust in the church. Because we've seen men who have been in, you know, high, lifted to high offices, high honor in the church. Guys like Ravi Zacharias that have been found to be full of fault and full of sin. And all the while, our trust is damaged, isn't it? This shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is when someone in history can actually endure temptation from Satan himself and come out the other side victorious. You know what I'm saying? There is one absolute trustworthy person in history, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to read in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, is we're going to see the God-man, fully God, fully man, as we learned last week, overcome temptation. And you're going to see it's so important that we don't just read these next two verses and just overlook them, but we need to think about what do they mean? What do they mean for us? If you'll remember, the book of Mark itself was written to a very skeptical culture, a a Roman culture. And it was written so that they would see that Jesus, based on the facts, was the real deal. And that they, whoever was reading the book of Mark, we think was the first written gospel, or most theologians do, that it was the first actually penned gospel. It was penned so that people would be forced to make a decision about who is Jesus. At the climax of the book of Mark, you have a discussion with the disciples where Jesus asks them, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Brothers and sisters, that is an important question for us to answer. In this passage, if you'll read along with me, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 12, it's a short passage. Read along with me. I'm reading in the Holman. It says, immediately the Spirit drove him, that's Jesus, into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was, the, he was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand the significance of this passage. Lord, would you help us not to glance over it or to get bored, but to see it for the incredible truth that it is, that you did what we could not, that you accomplished for us what no man in history, in the history past or in history future, you accomplished that for us. And Jesus, we say yes and amen to you from now on. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the people reading this book initially would be asking the question, why should I trust Jesus? When I talk to people today, and when I share the Gospels, and when I share the Gospel with them, I find that they ask that question often. Why should I trust Jesus? Was he not yet another man in history? As you know, we fast forward to the beginning of the book of Mark. In verse 1, it says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We define the gospel as the good news. Have you guys seen your notes there? You guys got your bulletin? I, that, I want us to memorize this. As a church, it's, it's gospel. It's uh, the life in six words. It goes, God, our sins, paying everyone life. You've seen me put up slides. I don't have them this week, but I want us to remember. Let's start with G. So that first G is God is the word. It's God created us to be with Him. God created us to be with Him. 
Did you say that with me? God created us to be with Him. And then O, you'll see that next letter down. O is our sins. So the next word is our. Our sins separate us from God. Our sins separate us from God. Okay, that's O. And then S, sins cannot be removed by good deeds. So that S stands for sin. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. I'm going to give you some chance to write down. I see some furious writers. And then P is paying. Paying the price for sin. Jesus died and rose again. P, paying the price for sin. Jesus died and rose again. And then E is everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. Everyone who trusts in Jesus alone has eternal life. And then that last letter L is life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. And the reason that I have us, I want us to memorize this church is not so that if somebody says, hey, how do I become a Christian? You just go, God, our sin's paying everyone life. Because they might look at you and be like, bro, you're weird. But I want you to remember this because it's, it's, really, it's an easy way for us to think about when we begin to share the gospel, we want to touch on each one of those of those topics. God, our sins paying everyone life. And we want to make sure that when we share the gospel, everybody understands each of those elements of the gospel, because that is the truth. And that is the truth about Jesus Christ and what he came to do. The last one, L. L is life. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. That's the gospel. In the gospel that Jesus showed he could secure for us in this passage. So again, to return to the question, why should I trust Jesus with my life and eternity? Have you asked this question? Why is he worthy? Is it just because you heard from your parents? Is it because you grew up in a Christian home? Why should you trust in Jesus? You should have that question. And you should have an answer for that. If you don't, hopefully by the end of this um, discussion, we can, we can know that you have an understanding. Many of the, the people who would have read this book um, early on maybe would have heard the, the general rumors about the story of Jesus, and they were asking, why should I trust or should I trust this man to make me right with God? And Christians, here is where we must ask, do we really believe that Jesus is the risen Savior and King, and do we trust him? Do we trust him with our life and with our eternity? You start there in verse 12 then. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So that begs the question, why did Jesus have to go and be tempted by Satan? Why did that have to happen? Well, because our Savior had to be tested and proven. Proven worthy of the task that was set before him. See, the testing of faith proves its worth, doesn't it? Many of us, I think, we forget to test things, don't we? How many of you, when you walked in, did you know you displayed an incredible act of faith today? You walked in and you sat down on those pews. You didn't know that they were going to hold your weight up. How many of you went down and you checked it first? You tested to make sure. You just trusted, didn't you? What an act of faith. What an act of faith. But it helps in our faith to, to test, to test the things that we know to be true. And we talked about last week, when we look at who we know God to be, we need to be testing that, not based on opinion, but by what? God's word. God's word. We use the word canon, right? The word canon literally means measure, measure of truth, that we should be testing the things that we believe by the word of God. 
always testing. Here's how we get away from hearsay and rumor about Jesus. We all bring it back to God's word. If you look in God's word, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, would you turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want, to look, I want you to look at a passage, uh, verse 20. So chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. I'll wait for the, I love the sound of those sweet pages rustling. So verse 20, therefore, if you read along with me, verse 20. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. All right? He made the one who did not know sin. Here's the important part, right? He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that last verse? Did you hear that? you think about what that means? The one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the one who did not know sin. When we talk about who this Jesus is in history, we can know that Jesus was without sin. That's crazy. How many of you can claim that you can go an hour without sin? 15 minutes without sin. Faith is only as good as what it is in. So the testing of of Jesus proved that he was capable. He was without sin. If you notice some things about Mark's specific example is uh, if you've read Matthew, if you've read Luke, you've read the other Gospels, they go into more detail, don't they? But this is a really short passage because Mark's purpose is different here in sharing. He is only trying to show that Jesus was qualified to pay the price for our sin because he was without sin. He's not going into exactly how Jesus how Jesus was able to deny, which is also, if you look in the account in Matthew, it's a great exploration, but that's not what Mark is trying to do. He's merely trying to get us to ask the question, should we trust in Jesus? And then I make the caveat, faith is only as good as what it is in. Our faith is in Jesus Christ, but I think a lot of times in culture, we get mixed up and we start to place our faith in other things, don't we, Christians? We begin to place our faith in our abilities. We begin to place our faith in humanity. We begin to place our faith in our paychecks or in our technology. And here's where it's important, brothers and sisters, the test for us is to test those things as well. Have you tested the things that you're trusting Because odds are they won't be as found sinless. And we have to go into this world understanding that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Kids, that means your parents are sinful creatures. But you know what? (laughs) So are you. Our teachers, our politicians cannot be our saviors. Our bosses, our heroes, our historical heroes, they cannot be our saviors. Only Jesus was the one that passed the test. For us, I think a lot of us, the, the, the narrative of our culture today is that we test ourselves. Uh, or the narrative is that we have faith in ourselves. Therefore, I want to propose that we test ourselves so that we can get an understanding for how much we are in need of Jesus' grace every day. How many of you need a reminder? I think we all need a reminder often of how much we are in desperate need of Jesus. And when I talk about anybody have a, a day of perfect obedience to Christ? Most, I like the laughter, right? It's almost laughable to us. At least we understand the depths of our depravity, isn't it? 
Not a single lie. Praying without ceasing. These are the things that God calls us to that we fail. Anybody good at praying without ceasing? Are you praying right now or have you forgot? Right? Giving up my way for God's way. How many are really good at giving up your way for God's way? We're not great at that, right? So if we continue to test ourselves, we find that we fall short of this test. Have you ever lied to yourself more than anyone? Uh, so if we know in Scripture that it tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all, all else and desperately wicked, what does that mean for us? Raise your hand. No one has lied to you more than you have lied to you. That one hurts, doesn't it? We are infinitely capable of self-deception. Don't worry, there's good news coming. Okay? Hang on. I don't mean this to be discouraging. How about the Ten Commandments? Have you ever tested yourself by the Ten Commandments? No other gods or no other idols. Have you ever placed your faith that something was going to make your life complete if you got it? You ever told yourself that? You've made for yourself an idol. If it's not God, you've made for yourself an idol. How many God's name in vain? Now, a lot of people take this one to mean, well, if I just say God's name uh, as a curse word, that that's what that means. That's actually not what that means. Do you know what that means? God's name in vain says that you claim the, the sonship or the daughtership of Christ. When you say you're a Christian, you're claiming the name of Christ. So then when you go and sin, what are you doing? You're taking God's name in vain. Oh man, it's much deeper than just a curse word, isn't it? It's much deeper than just a curse word. How about the Sabbath? How many of you are good at resting to the glory of the Lord? Where's my workaholics? You need to hear that one. The lazy people like me don't need to hear that one. We're we're great at uh, resting to the glory of the Lord. How about honor the father and mother? By, this, by the way, this, this one doesn't mean that you need to agree with your father and mother, but it does mean that you need to honor your father and mother. Right? How many of you struggle with that one? Well, then Jesus comes on the scene, and another, uh, another one of the Ten Commandments is don't murder, right? Well, how many of you are like, I got that one in the bank. I don't murder people. I'm good to go. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene and says, have you ever hated somebody? You're guilty of murder. Oh, I'm guilty of that one too. How about no adultery? As I think that one's impossible in today's society. No matter where you are or where you're at, right? No adultery. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, if you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. I won't make people raise hands for that one. Don't worry. Not stealing. Don't bear false witness. By the way, false witness means gossiping. Have you ever bore false witness about somebody to somebody else? Oh man, we're guilty. If you say you have no sin, we know that the, the scriptures tell us if you say that you have no sin, then the truth is not in you. Oh man, this is hard to hear. You guys doing okay? Don't worry. The good news is coming. The good news is coming because Jesus he only ever during his earthly ministry elevated the bar of holiness, by the way. Did you know that? He never made it easier to be right with God. He only ever said that it was impossible but through me. And so Christians, we can't, people, we can't be people that just say, hey, you just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be okay with God. Because Jesus only ever said, it is impossible to get to God and have right relationship with him but through me. But through me. See, Jesus only ever elevated the bar of holiness. And here he does that in this passage. It's beyond achieving. But we know, brothers and sisters, we know that our salvation is not dependent on us. There should be like, hallelujah, Shane, this is amazing. 
Our salvation doesn't depend on us. That, that words, that's worthy of a hoop and a holler. Thank goodness, because if it was up to me, I'd be in trouble. But now as a Christian, I can stand before you and say, I am right with God. Confidently. The, the Bible says, this is a mystery to me. It says we can come boldly before the throne of God the Father, who is perfectly holy and righteous. We can come boldly. Is that because we're good people? No, it's because we stand confidently on the rock of our salvation. It says that he is at the right hand of God. He's advocating for us. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. So why did he have to be placed into temptation, led into the wilderness, brought low, made weak, and then brought into temptation because we now can know that he was without sin. And that righteousness that he gives us at the cross, it's called the, the propitiation or the great exchange. Did you know that we didn't just have our sins forgiven? You know, we got something on the cross. You know what that was? He gave us his precious righteousness. That's why you can call yourself a son and a daughter of God by faith. Because you now have a new title. You are now given a whole new nature that of made right with God. Victory comes at the cross, not just at the denial of temptation. As you see in this passage, if you ever notice, this is just the beginning of that salvation. Because as we read in verses 12 to 13, Mark doesn't give us a victory, does he yet? Did you read where he's victorious over this yet? Over Satan yet? No, it's just that he was tempted. And then afterwards comes this phrase. And this is the second point. So the first point for us is that our Savior was tested and found perfect. And we can trust in that. Number two, this is what we call a fall reversal. There in uh, verse 13, it says, He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. Why is that passage really important? Because it harkens back to the book of Genesis. If you remember, Adam was in the midst of the garden, right? He was in the garden with the wild animals and who was stationed at the garden when, they, when he was booted out? The cherubim or the angels. And so here we see a contrast that Jesus is the new Adam. He's the second Adam. The last Adam is what 1 Corinthians. Would you turn 1 Corinthians chap, uh, chapter 15? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 45. I'm going to read it for you. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So this is Adam in Genesis. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who is the last Adam? Jesus is the last Adam. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth and made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man made of dust, so are those who are made of dust like the heavenly man. So are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, so, will, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly man through Jesus Christ. And so what is, what is happening here in this passage? When Mark, in Mark, when Jesus is standing in temptation before Satan, Satan is tempting him. He is unraveling for us. He's freeing us from the consequences of our father, Adam, bringing sin into this world. 
And sin is all we've ever known. So we get this picture that Jesus is, is a contradiction. He is other, he's, he's complete opposite of what our first father Adam gave us. Animals and angels. Let's talk about this. Animals. Adam left the Garden of Eden, that's relationship with God, signifying relationship with God, covered by animals because he was shamed. There had to be the pouring of blood to cover his sin because he disobeyed God. And he was kicked out and they stood in that. In fact, let's go to that passage, Genesis, Genesis um, chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see some important things that this Mark is addressing specifically. So then Jesus, he is surrounded by animals and served by angels, whereas Adam was covered by animals and kicked out by angels. So Jesus here is unraveling inherited sin. I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that we fundamentally don't understand sin and righteousness. We don't understand sin and righteousness from a biblical perspective. Sin is literally all we know and experience. You think about this. You and I have never known a human being without sin in our midst, right next to us. You and I swim in an ocean of continuing perpetual sin. What is sin? Sin is merely disobedience to God. We literally don't have a picture other than Jesus of what it looks like to obey God perfectly. And so it's kind of like that age-old saying, if you want to know what water is like, don't ask a fish. You guys heard that? Guys, if you want to know what sin is, don't ask another human being. Ask the one who knows. That's why Scripture is so important as the one that governs our right and wrong because we don't know right and wrong apart from God. If you want to know uh, what sin is, don't ask a human, ask God. Ultimately, Sin is doing evil, it's doing bad things, but it's also not obeying the Lord. We get Genesis 2.8. I want you to talk about, this is kind of a, it's a, it's a battle of wills. If you look back at Genesis 2, it's a battle of wills. Genesis 2, if you look at verse, uh, let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, comma, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, comma, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That comma is really important because there's a distinction. The only tree that's in the middle of the garden is what? The tree of life. Is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden? No, it's not because you go down to verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on that day you eat of it, you will certainly die. God never says that it's in the middle of the garden, in the center of the garden, which he created. But then I want you to fast forward to chapter 3 in Genesis. Fast forward to chapter 3, and I want you to look at the woman, so Eve's response to Satan when he's tempting her. The woman said to the serpent, we must, so this is verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. To Eve, what is at the center of the garden? No, Eve thinks that the, the tree in the middle of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did you miss it? Did you see it? So what is center about God's garden to the Lord is the tree of life. What is center to Eve is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's where we see the battle of wills. Mankind right here in this moment began to battle God for how we do life and how we define right and wrong. 
And see, when they took of it, no, you will not die, right? The serpent says to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat, eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And humanity was never the same. Because what Adam and Eve, they didn't just do bad things, but they wanted the right for themselves to define what is good and evil. Where are we at today in the church, in life? What is the battle? We live in a, in a time of relative truth. What's good for you? Maybe, you know, what's truth for you doesn't have to be my truth. Everybody defines their own right and wrong. And it becomes very subjective, doesn't it? We all have our own definitions of right and wrong because we want the center of the garden to be the knowledge of good and evil, don't we? But without God, there is no right and wrong. And relativism reigns. <clears throat> and this is where we find ourselves. We continually as humanity began to justify the things that we want, the conveniences that we want. I was a, a case manager for a, a juvenile delinquent prep school. And uh, one of the things that was our job to help kids identify when they're justifying evil behavior. Do you know how hard that is? Like you would, they would get before you and they would start to justify everything that they do and why it's okay and why it's okay just for them because they had such hardship in their life. It's okay for me to just do this, right? And that's where we began to, well, I've been sinned against, therefore I can, we get into this pattern of justification, don't we? That's what all of us as humans tend to fall into. That's hearkening back to the sin nature that we inherited. We're constantly wrestling with God over who's in charge, aren't we? Even in Christians, do you still feel the pull? The battle of the wills? Are you fighting the fight or have you given up? And you just want your own way. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live out of our new nature. But we can ignore his still small spirit or still small voice, can't we? Even as Christians, we can ignore that and, and have Christianity be something more along the lines of, well, God is going to submit his will to what I want for my life. Here's what we call the prosperity gospel today. It's a deceiving doctrine that has come and said that God needs to submit to my will for me, and he'll get on board with what I want. But that's not, fundamentally, that's the very sin that Adam and Eve are guilty of when we want to manipulate God into doing our way of life. See, when we become believers, Romans 10, 9 says that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. You know what that Lordship means? I'm no longer in charge. God is the one who is in charge. So as we look at this passage, Satan appeals to your nature to define your own good. Jesus completely upends this for us by returning us to God's governance. You guys know what our Savior and what our Lord said in the garden, uh, or sorry, in the, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting it, but when he was um, dialoguing with God and the disciples were sleeping and uh, he's praying to the Lord and he's saying, God, let this, pass, this cup pass from me. When he's the, the night before the cross, right? He's looking at this deep punishment, the wrath that would come on to him. For all of humanity, he said, let this cup pass from me. You know what he said? Not, not my will, Lord, but you. that is what God restored us to, with submission to the will of the Lord. So what, what does it take away for us? We can have confidence in our salvation because it is finished. Amen? We have a tried and true and tested Savior. And then let go of our will so that we can have the freedom of obedience in Christ again. 
Let us let go of our own will and submit to that of Christ because he has better things for us than we could fathom. We don't even know what life without sin looks like unless we look upon our sin. So life groups, a challenge for you is um, what is a new and fresh way that you can rekindle your relationship with Jesus? And what is, what is a way that you can return to appreciating the, the final nature of uh, your salvation? What are ways of confidence? Maybe what's a better way to say this? What are ways that you can choose confidence in salvation in your day-to-day life? What are ways that you can choose confidence in your salvation in your day-to-day life?